1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
2: This episode features discussion of drug abuse, suicide, and murder that may be offensive to some listeners. Discretion is advised, especially to listeners under 13.
1: November 5th, 1994. The Viking Arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was a literal sweat box. No windows, no air conditioning. The pungency of a thousand hygienically challenged extreme championship wrestling fans packed around the ring was so acrid it could make your eyes water. 27-year-old Chris Benoit, sporting blue lycra pants and a fluffy mullet, made his way to the ring for the second main event match of the night against Sabu. Benoit bounced against the ropes, hyping himself up for the fight. Suddenly, Sabu raced out from the locker room and
2: dove into the ring, sliding under the bottom rope. He leaped at Benoit, starting the match before they even rang the bell. Fueled by the surprise attack, Benoit took his revenge. While Sabu struggled to get back to his feet, Benoit stomped on one of his hands. Then he took a fistful of Sabu's hair, pulled his head eye level, and punched him square in the ear.
1: Benoit dominated Sabu, tossing him around the ring like a rag doll, picking him up over his head and dropping him onto the top rope. Commentator Joey Stiles said what was plain for all to see, Benoit feeling very confident in the first few minutes of this matchup. So
2: confident, he pulled Sabu to his feet, hoisted him in the air, then launched the nearly six-foot-tall, 230-pound man over his left shoulder for a pancake fall. But Sabu didn't turn his body quickly enough. When he landed, Benoit heard a sickening crack. Sabu had fallen headfirst onto the mat, his neck bent at a 60-degree angle. As the entire arena erupted in a mixture of shock, horror, and applause, Sabu
1: clutched his head and rolled out of the ring. He gasped to his handler. I broke my neck. I broke my neck, goddammit. Meanwhile, Benoit strutted around and posed on the ropes, refusing to drop his character or stop the show. He was no longer Chris Benoit. He was the Crippler.
2: Welcome to Sports Criminals, a Parcast Original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson.
1: And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At Parcast,
2: we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: This is our first episode on professional wrestler Chris Benoit. Through the course of his 22 year career, Benoit made a name for himself around the world, winning titles in Canada, Japan, Mexico, and the U.S. He was regarded as a hard worker, a disciplined wrestler, and a loving family man. Until, in June of 2007,
2: 40-year-old Benoit did the unthinkable. Over the course of three days, he murdered his wife Nancy, their seven-year-old son Daniel, then
1: took his own life. This week, we'll track Benoit's rise through the ranks, from his start in Stampede to his time in the WWE. Next week, we'll cover the events leading up to the gruesome Benoit family tragedy we'll try to understand how one of the best men in the locker room made the most shocking real life heel turn imaginable.
2: Before we get into the story, let's talk about professional wrestling for a second. People are quick to point out how wrestling is fake, but that's not really an accurate description. As WCW World Heavyweight Champion Bill Goldberg
1: said, it's not fake, it's predetermined. What does he mean by that? Uh, Well, wrestling can't be called a quote-unquote real sport because it's not a competition. The outcome of every match is decided backstage by bookers and promoters, so no, it's not a sport. It's a performance, one that requires a great deal of real talent and real athleticism. Sure, guys pull their punches, their kicks don't actually connect, they oversell their injuries to the crowd but the work done in a wrestling ring is undeniably grueling and physically punishing.
2: There's a right way to take a German suplex, but there's no easy way. You're still landing with the full force of your body weight on a hard suspended mat, which is really just a few inches of wood covered by even less foam padding. And if you land the wrong way, you can pinch a nerve or rupture a disc or break your freaking neck. Yet night after night, show after show, wrestlers take to the ring and dive headfirst off that top rope, all in the name of putting on a good show and telling a good story.
1: And like all stories, there are heroes, called babyfaces, and villains, called heels. For decades, wrestlers resolutely maintained their caricature personas both in and out of the ring, upholding the strict rules of kayfabe canon. They only referred to each other by their in-ring names, Heels only traveled with heels, faces only partied with faces, and backstage there were always two separate locker rooms in a fake sport. Kayfabe added the necessary realness to work all the wrestling fans out there into believing what they were seeing. Someone who really buys into the world of wrestling, someone who either
2: actually thinks it's real or allows themselves to forget that it's predetermined, is referred to as a mark. This is a holdover from the origins of professional wrestling, when matches were basically mobster-backed betting schemes. Working a mark is con artist lingo. In later years, they weren't so much conning you out of your money as they were your loyalty
1: and fandom. And Chris Benoit was self-admittedly one of the biggest wrestling marks of all time. He could never get enough of professional wrestling, even when he became a professional wrestler himself. Author Matthew Randozo wrote in his book, Ring of Hell, at heart, Chris Benoit was just a big fan, someone who had irrationally followed his childhood dream and continued to pursue it long after he knew better. Benoit grew up in Edmonton, Alberta,
2: Canada in the 1970s. At that time, wrestling promotions were broken up by territories. Who you saw in the ring depended on where you lived. Alberta, and most of Western Canada, belong to a promotion called Stampede Wrestling run by Stu Hart.
1: Stu's wrestlers trained in the dungeon, known to be one of the most punishing initiation rites imaginable. In a literal basement prison in his mansion, Stu stretched new wrestlers in sadistic submission holds, only releasing them when they begged for their lives through blubbery tears. In this crucible, he produced some of the most violent, hard-bitten-ass-kicking fighters around. They had to have that kind of talent to survive with their fans. Randozo explained, If Stampede ever offered up the type of cartoonish, phony action that typified pro wrestling elsewhere, the bar-brawling audience would riot and heckle.
2: And at the center of this destruction in
1: the late 70s
2: and early 80s, when Chris Benoit was a kid glued to his TV set, was the dynamite kid, Tom Billington. Benoit completely idolized him. At only five foot eight and 220 pounds, Billington made up for his smaller size with insane acrobatics in the ring that could rightfully be described as suicidal. His signature move, the diving headbutt, saw Billington leap headfirst from the top rope arms at his side, drilling his skull into his prone opponent's chest. He performed this spine-shattering stunt thousands of times in his career. Unsurprisingly, Billington was wheelchair-bound
1: and brain-damaged before the age of 40. Other wrestlers called him a cautionary tale. But to Chris Benoit, Dynamite Kid was his favorite performer, personal role model, and professional blueprint. Every other wrestling champion was some seven-foot, 300-pound monster that slapped little guys around in the ring. But Billington's agility and stunts made the big guys look like uncoordinated clods that he could wrestle circles around. He proved that midweight wrestlers could be champions too, as long as they had enough guts. Benoit, who was also a small guy, decided at age 12 he was going to follow in Dynamite's footsteps, no matter what. Benoit went to
2: work building up his slight physique through weight training and allegedly steroid use. By
1: 1985, he could bench press 400 pounds. That year, he joined Stampede Wrestling and was brutally initiated into Stu Hart's dungeon. According to Randozo, Stu believed that a pro wrestler should above all else be tough and humble and the only reliable solvent of a rookie's ego and fear was the merciless, concentrated application of pain. After a trainee experienced true, pristine pain, there would be nothing that could ever phase him in the ring. This last part was especially
2: important, not just to maintain kayfabe, but also to keep a wrestler from getting injured. The choreography of most matches is called in the ring. Generally, the only thing laid out beforehand is who's going to win and what their finishing move set will be. This means the wrestlers have to be able to communicate quickly and accurately during a fight, no matter how beaten up or exhausted or concussed they are. They need to be able to react on an instinctual level when another wrestler jumps at them from the top rope or picks them
1: up and body slams them onto the mat. Stu applied Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule to professional wrestling. But instead of running scales on the cello, his boys were running the ropes and taking pratfalls. Benoit was a diligent student,
2: silently and graciously taking his lumps. While this could be seen as a young man adopting professionalism toward his chosen career, it could also be seen as the first time the line between real life and kayfabe blurred for him. The dungeon was legendary among wrestling circles. He'd known what he was signing up for going in. He was in on the secret. Stu's stretching was all part of the act, part of the art. So, if he played the kayfabe part assigned to him, tortured trainee wrestler, he'd eventually be allowed to move into his next role, promising novice wrestler. Eventually, he'd be made the leading man, heavyweight champion. The more his masochistic work ethic paid off, the more his life followed the kayfabe script closer he was to becoming the next iteration of the Dynamite
1: Kid. After only seven months on the Stampede active roster, 19-year-old Benoit was given his next big break. He was invited to train at the New Japan Pro Wrestling Dojo in Tokyo. The dojo's reputation for punishment and sadistic torture of trainee wrestlers made Stu Hart's dungeon look like summer camp. Their graduation rate was estimated at 1%. And Benoit suffered even more targeted abuse for being a gaijin, a foreigner, and an undersized one at that. It was assumed that no Westerner would have the strength to endure the training. He should just drop out now and save them all some time. As described by Matthew Randazzo,
2: all the trainees, called young boys or kohais, lived in the barracks at the dojo, Veterans or seniors, called senpais, were assigned to mentor them. Young boys were required to show absolute obedience to their senpais, no matter the request, whether it was doing their laundry, buying their groceries, or washing their back in the shower. When the actual training portion of the day began, it started with 1,000 squats and 500 push-ups. If any of the young boys showed signs of weakness or pain, they were assigned another set of 500.
1: Only after all this exhausting punishment were they finally allowed to enter the ring. And even then, most of the time, they were stretched. If they were allowed to spar, it was in the customary Japanese strong style, which was designed to be as real as possible. If the trainers felt like the young boys weren't selling their moves hard enough, they'd punch them in the face for real, drawing blood. At the end of the day,
2: it was all the young boys could do to drag themselves back to the barracks and collapse into their bunks. As excruciating as it was, Benoit, in customary fashion, put his head down, followed the rules, and muscled through. After all, the dynamite kid was also a product of the New Japan Dojo. This was just one more
1: step on the road to becoming his idol. But he honestly hated his time in Japan. He didn't speak the language, he was constantly harassed, he hated the food, and he was incredibly homesick. Benoit started to retreat in on himself. He earned the nickname Houdini from his friends for his ability to disappear into thin air. Fellow New Japan wrestler Scott Norton
2: recalled, when the boys would be out drinking and eating, we'd be laughing, having fun. And then you'd look at Benoit and he'd just not be there. His eyes would be blank. He'd be on some other planet, just staring out to space like a zombie. He did this
1: all the time. Everything in his life was centered around the world of wrestling and his future in the business. When he was in the ring, he came alive, establishing himself as a talent to watch. But out in the real world, Benoit had no idea who he was. So he simply allowed himself to disappear.
2: Coming up, Benoit takes on a new
1: name in Japan, the Pegasus Kid. Now, back to the story. After five months of torture and isolation in the New Japan Pro Wrestling Dojo, 22-year-old Chris Benoit made his in-ring debut as a young lion on the bottom of the card. But while he showed promise as a wrestler, his bookers were unimpressed by his face. He just wasn't that handsome. So they changed his name... Stuck a mask on him and called it a day. He became
2: Pegasus Kid in 1989. He played the heel to babyface wrestler Jushin Thunder Liger, an established midweight hero who was modeled after a popular cartoon. Liger also wore a mask. He had the body of the Red Ranger and the head of a horned samurai monster. Like Benoit, Liger dutifully respected the art of wrestling over the sport of wrestling. The pair was so well matched, their feud reignited the junior heavyweight division with fans and secured
1: Benoit's prestige in New Japan for the rest of his career. On August 19th, 1990, Benoit and Liger faced off for the International Wrestling Grand Prix Junior Heavyweight Championship. Winning this was the pinnacle for mid-sized guys in Japan. By then, Liger had held the belt for 200 days. Benoit's victory would be a huge
2: upset. Benoit started the match slowly, rolling Liger up into a crossbow submission hold. He needed to build a clear story arc for the audience, one in which he completely dominated Liger. So once Liger escaped the submission hold, Benoit focused all his attacks on his opponent's back because according to kayfabe rules, it had been weakened by the stretching. It was something Benoit could continue to exploit. He smashed Liger into the mat with a belly-to-back suplex. He immediately followed it up with a snapmare, grabbing Liger by the neck and flipping him over his shoulder, again slamming him into the ground
1: back first. So far, the match felt incredibly one-sided. Benoit couldn't be stopped. He ducked Liger's enzuguri kick and landed on his feet after a harried back body drop. It all fed into the narrative that Benoit was impervious to anything Liger threw at him. The next time Liger charged,
2: Benoit kicked him in the stomach, then lifted him over his head in a gorilla press, once again smashing his opponent down on his back.
1: Every spot Benoit performed added more and more damage to Liger's back. A bridging German suplex, a superplex from the top rope, and a clothesline that immediately flattened him. Eventually, Benoit signaled, It was time to go to the finish. First, he
2: scooped up Liger and crashed him headfirst into the mat with a tombstone pile driver. Then, while Liger writhed, unable to move, Benoit climbed to the top rope. He jumped, landing directly on top of Liger with a left leg drop. Then, he scrambled to cover his opponent's flattened body. The
1: official counted. One, two, three. He'd done it. He'd won the championship. And even more amazing, the crowd in the arena cheered and celebrated Benoit as he accepted the belt. Even though he was a foreigner, even though he'd bested one of the most popular fan-favorite wrestlers, it was a huge win. After so many months of feeling like an outsider in Tokyo, in this moment, in this ring, he was accepted. With this
2: win and his established prestige from surviving the dojo, Benoit could have wrestled in Japan for the rest of his career if he'd wanted. And that was not a lousy prospect. Japanese wrestlers are well-paid and earn more respect from the public. They're treated like celebrity athletes. They also have a much less arduous touring schedule, allowing them to recuperate from injuries and spend time with their family. They wrestle two weeks on,
1: two weeks off, guaranteed. American wrestlers, on the other hand, are independent contractors. They're paid for appearances, and that's it. They cover their own travel, hotel rooms, gear, food, and medical expenses. They don't even get health insurance. In 1994, before he was famous, Triple H signed a basic entry-level one-year contract with WCW for $52,000. The equivalent of a little over $90,000 today. After a year, he walked. He'd spent so much money on expenses, he'd actually lost money in that time. Not only are American wrestlers paid less than their Japanese
2: counterparts, they're actually expected to work more, 300 shows a year over the course of 50 weeks, leaving no time to properly rehab injuries, meaning that most wrestlers are working hurt half the time. And because their independent contractor agreements guarantee so little, if a wrestler is seriously injured and forced to take time off the road, there's a strong chance their job won't be waiting for them when they're healed, unless they're an ultra-established megastar money printing machine like John Cena or The Rock.
1: This system, which is still in place today, fosters a culture of fear, fear of appearing weak and being replaced. And that desperation to hold on to your job at all costs lends itself to rampant substance abuse. Many wrestlers have a history of alcoholism and narcotic addiction, habits that they picked up as a way to dull the pain enough to keep working. There are many, many wrestlers in the history of the WWE who have suffered substance abuse issues, too many to cover here. But to give one example, in 2008, Rey Mysterio publicly addressed his addiction to pain medication and subsequent rehabilitation. He attributed his introduction to opioids to his many injuries. As wrestling blogger Joe Burgett relayed in a post for Bleacher Report, Mysterio has had so many surgeries and injuries, and on top of that, he has to wrestle four to five times a week on the same places he hurt before. Painkillers were needed for him to even move half the time. Despite
2: the opioid addiction, and despite what must be constant pain, Rey Mysterio refused to give up on his career. As of 2020, he's still a professional wrestler. Chris Benoit had seen this kind of reliance on illegal substances in his territory days in Canada. Guys that were so beat to hell, they had to pile on the downers every night just to be able to sleep, then greeted each morning with a bowl of Wheaties and a bump of Coke to jumpstart them back into action. Even his hero, Dynamite Kid, was eventually caught in this cycle. Benoit was never much of a hard drug user or binge drinker, but he was allegedly a heavy steroids user. Colleagues reported that Benoit was constantly juicing. The Stampede locker room nicknamed him and his tag team partner Megadoses at one point over their extreme usage. This not only helped him maintain his massive musculature, but the steroids helped heal his injuries at a faster rate.
1: He was juicing so much and so addicted to life in the ring that while the rest of his New Japan colleagues enjoyed their two weeks off to get some much deserved R&R, Benoit sought out extra matches. Those two weeks off didn't feel like a vacation, they felt like a waste of time. He didn't need a break, he needed to work. One of the New Japan promoters hooked Benoit up with some colleagues in a Mexico promotion. Because he was currently working as Pegasus Kid, a masked performer, he easily fit in with the luchador wrestlers of Lucha Libre AAA worldwide.
2: Instead of enjoying his paid vacation in Tokyo, Benoit traveled to squalid venues around Mexico for the better part of 1991. As described in Ring of Hell, the rings were as hard as pavement, and the conditions at the smaller shows were third world abysmal. Some shows would be held in filthy boxing rings, cockfighting pits, or in rings consisting of concrete platforms covered in sawdust. The shower meant a garden hose out back with a bucket. And sometimes the only lighting available was a rope strung over the ring that held a garbage can with a hobo fire lit inside of it.
1: Given this context, we understand more how much Chris Benoit was addicted to wrestling. He had a pathological need to prove himself as the most professional, most experienced, most consummate wrestler of all time. He wanted to be the guy that other wrestlers wanted to be the dynamite kid for a new generation. He never wanted to be accused of resting on his success. He wanted to push himself to keep going for more. And that meant taking on the United States wrestling scene until he'd established himself as a top guy in an American promotion he'd never let up. Because without that final accolade, he could never truly compare himself to the dynamite kid.
2: 25-year-old Benoit got his chance to make a move in 1992, when he was booked in World Championship Wrestling's Clash of the Champions TV special. Though WCW was certainly second banana to WWE, it was still a major televised promotion. Wrestling as Chris Benoit, no longer the Pegasus Kid, he was tagged with an old friend from Stampede Wrestling, Biff Wellington, the other half of the Megadoses. They were set to fight fellow Canadian Flyin' Brian Pillman and Benoit's longtime New Japan rival Jushin Thunder Liger. It was just one tag team match in a huge tournament of international talent, and it would essentially serve as Benoit's tryout for the American big leagues.
1: Benoit especially wanted to impress WCW's booker, Bill Watts. He'd recently taken the helm and was eager to right the ship after a few years of mismanagement. Benoit had heard that Watts was scouting new talent for the show. But he had to strike a delicate balance between trying to impress Watts without stealing the spotlight from his competitors. Author Matthew Randazzo explained. The match wasn't about Benoit. He was brought in to sell the fans on the ability and credibility of Pillman and Liger. If Watts got the impression that Benoit was cutting a commercial for himself, they would never be in the same locker room again. Benoit and Liger
2: started the match in the ring, their tag team partners cheering them on from the apron. Tasked with making Liger look good, the men started out with some traditional Greco-Roman grappling. Benoit flipped Liger over with a fireman's carry, but Liger popped right back up, showing that he was impervious to the move. Throughout the match, whenever Benoit looked like he was getting ahead, it was simply set up for Liger to overcome his offense and look more and more superhuman. Benoit afforded the same courtesy to Brian Pillman, working a punishing sequence halfway through the match. While running the ropes, trying to set up a clothesline, Pillman caught Benoit in the middle of the ring and sent him flying outside through the middle ropes. When Benoit tried to come back into the ring from the top rope, Pillman snatched him from behind, sending him crashing to the mat in a belly-to-back suplex. Then, while Benoit struggled to get to his feet, Pillman took to the top rope himself, once Benoit was standing, Pillman launched himself feet first into Benoit's chest, leveling him with a drop kick.
1: By the end of the seven and a half minute match, Benoit had proven himself as a humble hard worker and a ring general. He impressed Watts well enough that in January of 1993, he joined WCW full time and went on tour. But for all his years in the dungeon and the dojo, he was woefully unprepared for the experience. Chris Benoit had a gaping blind spot
2: in a key area of American locker rooms. The consummate professional, the humble workhorse, willing to pay his dues and prove his worth, had never before
1: had to contend with backstage politics. Benoit wasn't walking into a professional wrestling locker room, he was entering a viper's nest.
2: Coming up, Benoit struggles to find his place in WCW, spiraling him into depression. Now back to the story. In
1: 1993, Chris Benoit joined the locker room at World Championship Wrestling, or WCW. Media mogul Ted Turner founded the promotion five years earlier to serve as a rival to WWE. Turner birthed WCW from the ashes of the failing Jim Crockett promotions. JCP's matches already aired on TBS, owned by Turner. He figured he'd buy the outfit, throw some money at it, and see if he could make something better out of the time slot. Maybe even give Vince McMahon and the WWE a run for their money. So from the beginning, WCW was really nothing more than a vanity project.
2: Ted Turner was busy running a TV empire. He didn't have time to act as a booker or promoter. Instead, he farmed out the work to various suits and cowboys over the years, all the while spending tens of millions of dollars on a product that consistently hemorrhaged ratings and alienated wrestling fans.
1: But Chris Benoit and many other young hopefuls like him didn't have access to a crystal ball and therefore had no idea that they'd latched themselves onto the primetime equivalent of the Titanic sinking. Hindenburg disaster and Pompeii eruption all rolled into one.
2: We don't have the time to untangle the Gordian knot that is the gross mismanagement of WCW. Instead, we're gonna focus on the main issue, the one that affected Chris Benoit the most. It was a political minefield. Whether you made it to the top depended on how well you played the game, one that he was wholly unequipped for. Benoit wasn't a schmoozer,
1: he was a worker. Stu Hart had run his promotion like a family, He was the patriarch until he handed over the reins to one of his sons, but even then, the Stampede Boys were brothers. You paid your dues, you got your shot. In Japan, the Senpai-Kohai system was a form of politics all its own, but there was nothing to manipulate. You either got on your Senpai's good side, or you were mercilessly harassed until you quit. And in both of these promotions, Benoit's strict adherence to the rules of kayfabe, the professional work ethic, the serious dedication it brought him respect. He was a wrestler's wrestler, someone to be admired.
2: In WCW, he was openly mocked for working too hard. Benoit watched the guys at the top slither their way into management's good graces by smooth-talking and glad-handing. The A-Guys party their butts off every night, stumbled into the ring drunk, failed to show up for matches at all, and raked in millions of dollars all the same. While most of the WCW roster was under typical we'll give you the axe whenever we feel like it contracts, the A guys had finagled mind-boggling guarantees that made as little sense to the storytelling
1: as it did to WCW's bottom line. And it was their total disregard for good storytelling and showmanship that Benoit took more offense to than the money. Decisions about who should win a match and who should be a top guy were completely arbitrary. They'd steal someone's heat without a second thought, even if it made zero sense for the storyline or the established character. In Ring of Hell, Randazzo
2: uses a rivalry between Hulk Hogan, the top face in WCW at the time, and super heel Vader as an example. By that point, Hogan was pushing 40 and all around pretty washed up. But the suits at WCW, who were completely out of touch with wrestling fans, still saw Hogan as a superstar. So they pushed him to the top of the card and gave him a contract that said he could stay there for as long as Hogan wanted, essentially making him his own booker. In 1992, they brought on a young hotshot heel named Vader, a six-foot-four, 450-pound behemoth. His finisher, the Vader Bomb, was one of the most realistically devastating moves at the time. The Vader Bomb is a corner slingshot splash from the second rope. Vader would bounce a few times on the ring to gain momentum, then jump backwards and land all 450 pounds directly on his opponent's prone chest. He once cracked an opponent's ribs and
1: ruptured his spleen with the move. In kayfabe rules, this was an instant match ender. There was no way to come back from the Vader bomb. Unless you're Hulk Hogan, a.k.a you're contractually guaranteed to be invincible. In one of his early matches with Vader, instead of selling the damage of the bomb at all, Hogan leapt up to his feet and started posing in the middle of the ring, completely unfazed. And just like that, the power of the move and Vader's credibility completely vanished. A sacrificial lamb to Hulk Hogan's vanity. To Benoit, it was one of the most selfish, disrespectful things one wrestler could do to another to the integrity of the work. For years, Benoit toiled away in
2: WCW, unable to advance or get any heat. Top guy Kevin Nash referred to him and other mid-carters as nothing more than vanilla midgets. The audience would never accept them as champs. In response to this stagnation, Benoit followed the gospel of the dungeon and the dojo. He kept his mouth shut and worked harder. Night after night, he killed himself in the ring, still believing that with enough dedication, he'd win management's respect and get his shot at the top of the card. But all he got for his trouble was more wear and tear on his body and constant seething resentment.
1: His best friend and fellow WCW mid-carder, Eddie Guerrero, was handling the situation even worse than Benoit, numbing his frustration with booze and drugs. Eventually, he had enough. By December 31st, 1998, Guerrero was despondent and completely broken by his WCW prison. He went for a drive by himself. He swallowed five capsules of GHB, a powerful sedative typically used as an anesthetic. Then he slammed on the gas pedal until he reached 130 miles per hour and drove off the road into a ditch. Guerrero was launched through the front windshield, his body catapulted 100 feet through the air.
2: Miraculously, Guerrero survived the crash, though doctors warned that he would likely never walk again. Unable to accept this, and unable to accept that he'd nearly let the suits at WCW get the better of him, Guerrero swallowed and injected whatever it took to get back into the ring. Benoit stood by his side once he returned to the ring, acting as his caretaker, babysitter, and chauffeur. Rondazzo wrote, After Eddie drank and pilled himself into an incoherent stupor, Benoit carried him through hotel rooms and locker rooms and meetings, doing his best to keep an
1: eye on Eddie and protect his job so he could support his family. And perhaps it was Eddie's pain, and not his own, that finally made Benoit say uncle. For the first time in his life, Benoit was ready to throw in the towel. On the morning of
2: January 16, 2000,
1: before a pay-per-view
2: titled Sold Out, Benoit, Guerrero, and a dozen other mid-card guys approached the current WCW booker, Bill Bush. They wanted to be released. Not pleased by the prospect of losing over a dozen workers in one
1: fell swoop, Bush asked the men for some time to think. While he contemplated what to do, Benoit allegedly revealed to a WCW announcer that he'd already made up his mind. He was leaving, one way or another. Benoit told him that if he didn't get the release from his WCW exclusive contract, I'm going to walk out on live TV and punch a ring post and shatter my hand. Then I'm going to punch the ring post with my other hand and shatter it too. Then I'm going to walk backstage, go to the hospital and sit out while I recover. Luckily,
2: such drastic measures weren't required. A week after the pay-per-view, Benoit was legally released and free to pursue work with another promotion. And by the end of the month, he was welcomed with open arms by the WWF, which later
1: became the WWE. Life in the WWE locker room was everything that Benoit could hope for, at first. He was treated to a heavy push in the booking, Along with former WCW wrestlers Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, and Perry Saturn, he formed a stable called The Radicals. They were immediately pitted against hot commodity D-Generation X, the stable run by management darling Triple H. The next week, The Radicals stunned audiences with a heel turn, joining forces with DX, launching Monday Night Raw to an 8.1 Nielsen rating for the night, Chris Benoit had climbed the mountaintop and planned to stay there. But soon enough, the same political maneuvering that plagued
2: the WCW locker room made its way to the WWE. While WCW had lacked a strong leader, suffering from a revolving door of clueless promoters and narcissistic bookers, WWE had almost the exact opposite problem, though it yielded similar symptoms. The company was ruled by the iron fist of Vince McMahon. He hired every wrestler, approved every plotline, and decided the outcome of every match. Sitting at his knee, waiting for their turn on the throne, were his two children, Shane and Stephanie. And once blatant nepotism was introduced into the equation, WWE suffered a ratings decline comparable
1: to WCW's. Similarly, the McMahons abandoned good storytelling and good sense to push self-interested plot lines and favored wrestlers, even when the fans pushed back. Stephanie was named head of creative and in charge of the writer's room. Her real-life husband, Triple H, was given title reign after title reign. Eventually, the McMahons took center stage in the ring, booking themselves into main event matches.
2: Once again, desperate to prove his ring ability, refusing to get lost in the shuffle, Chris Benoit spent the better part of 2001 mercilessly flaying himself on live TV, sustaining injury after injury, to the point that at the June 24th King of the Ring pay-per-view, Benoit completely put himself out of commission in a triple threat match with Chris Jericho and Stone Cold Steve Austin. In the final moments of the 36-minute match, Benoit climbed to the top rope for his signature flying headbutt dive. He leaps through the air, belly flopping face first into Stone Cold's chest.
1: Instantly, the
2: entire right side of his body went numb.
1: He insisted on finishing the match, which Stone Cold ultimately won to retain his championship. When Benoit finally saw a doctor, he learned that a disc in his cervical spine had ruptured, pinching his spinal cord nerves between two vertebrae. Not only would he need spinal fusion surgery, there was a chance he'd never wrestle again. When Benoit heard the news,
2: he reportedly had a complete emotional breakdown. He refused to accept that this could be the end of his career, that he could fight for so long to touch the stars, only to stumble at a straw. Like Eddie Guerrero after his car accident, Chris Benoit was resolutely determined to come back to wrestling after some rehab. Though he'd traditionally stayed away from hard drugs to that point, he reportedly
1: started taking any pill that would help him muscle through the pain. Upon his release from the hospital, his doctor advised that he wait three months before attempting any exercise. Instead, the very next day, he spent hours jogging up and down the stairs in his house to train. He was a man possessed with one goal, getting back in that ring, even if it killed him.
2: Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with the rest of Chris Benoit's story. We'll follow his return to the WWE and how it impacted his mental and emotional decline. Finally, we'll walk through the events of the Benoit family tragedy and how it changed pro wrestling forever.
1: For more information on Chris Benoit, in addition to the many sources we used, we found Matthew Randazzo's book Ring of Hell extremely helpful to our research.
2: You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for
1: free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar.
2: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.